update. As promised, everyone, it is noon, so we'll get going. Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to another Speaking of. Hi, Sarah. Good to see you, as usual. How are you doing today? Hello, Jane. I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. I'm, you know, really interested to see where we go with this topic of greenwashing today. It's such a big topic. There's so much to say. There really is. I'm I'm excited too. And uh, before we get going on this topic, just like we do during every speaking of, we'll do a bit of housekeeping first. So if you're just joining us for the first time, these discussions are casual. We don't have charts or slides, but we will be inviting you to ask questions along the way and share ideas, participate in the discussion. Secondly, we are really, really fortunate to be at our City Channel 4 office today. Uh, they have been very generous at letting us use their office space for these events, which really helps us maintain that solid internet connection. If we do happen to cut out though or freeze up as the internet sometimes does, just know that we will be right back. Yes, indeed. You know, thanks for covering that, Jane. And welcome to all of you joining us today. So greenwashing. This is a term used often in our industry and a simple way to define it as a product or a service that is promoted as being more eco-friendly than it really is. And to tackle the topic today, because there are a lot of different ways you can talk about it, um, Jane and I are opting to talk very specifically on labels. So labels that are put on products that make them seem more eco-friendly, but may not pan out in the way we think they do. Yeah, Sarah, that's right. And when we say eco-friendly, that can mean a lot of different things, depending on what product or service that we're talking about. So it could be referring to recycled content or recyclability. It could be talking about water and energy savings or local ingredients. The list goes on and on. Yep. And we'll also talk about how to maybe weigh the options when you're confronted with two good, good labels to look at. But I know we have a list of labels that we'd like to discuss today, but we both want to be sure that those of you who are joining us for the conversation today with specific questions about labels you've seen, that you get those questions answered too. So, you know, why don't we actually begin there with our Q&A box. If you are listening in and you have a label you've seen that you'd like us to promote or provide some information on, yeah. go ahead and put it in the box now and we'll do our best to work it into the conversation. And of course, you can always put questions and comments in the Q&A box as we go along. We always keep that box open and keep an eye on it to get them answered. So let's see if anybody wants to enter any labels into the Q&A box that we can take a look at. Yeah, sir, that's a great idea. And I, I'm really interested to see what labels people have questions about. And just as full disclaimer, just like with other topics, Sarah and I are not experts on every label out there. Uh, and there are definitely new ones that pop up all the time. Like certified plastics neutral. Yes, like certified plastics neutral, one that caught our attention just recently. So if you put a label in that we haven't heard of, we're happy to research it. We'll follow up by email uh, with the email that we will send after the event anyway. Indeed we are. And you know, I'm seeing there's at least one interesting label in here, Jane. Really? Um, we have an anonymous attendee who put in cradle to cradle, which is actually one that was included, I think, in the press release we sent out yep. about this event. Um, I'll say cradle to cradle, just very quickly, is a great and legitimate label. And one of the things I really love about it specifically is that um, it's a label that talks about 
or signifies that this product has been checked out from the point of manufacturing to the point of demanufacturing. So it's really looking at the whole life cycle of that product and saying, yep, this one checks out as a good product to buy start to finish. Um, and that's something actually Jane and I have talked about many times that many of these labels just look at a small segment of like maybe the production, but not what you do with the product after you're done using it. Or yep. you'll see labels that talk about like, how do you recycle it, but not how it was produced. And sometimes those things don't add up to really understanding the eco footprint of a product. So something like cradle to cradle, that's really looking at it cradle to grave and specifically the significance of calling it cradle to cradle instead of cradle to grave is it implies that this is a product that can um, be remade into something else. So it's that closed loop um, that we sometimes talk about. It's a, it's a great label. Thanks for bringing it up. Yeah, Sarah, and you've heard me talk about this a lot too. And anyone on the line that has ever heard me talk to a group or present, I talk about upstream and downstream a lot. And we focus so much on the recycling end. You know, what do I do with it when I'm done with it? But there's so much environmental impact that happens before we even show up at the store to purchase something. So that's really why I like the label because it's honoring that whole impact and uh, what, you know, what materials, transportation, logistics, everything that's involved. Yeah. Yeah. And we even talked about in a previous webinar that if you have a question about a product and you're trying to decide, you know, between two different products and which is the better one to buy or something that's labeled as being, um, you know, good for the environment and you're not sure, we always say go and look at the life cycle analysis, like whatever product it is, say it's a water heater, you can type in water heater life cycle analysis and you'll get something that will come up and talk about the energy usage. This comes up a lot with electric vehicles, in fact, comparing electric vehicles to conventional vehicles. So cradle to cradle is just a label that does that for you, which is great. You know, I think, Jane, we're going to have a lively discussion today. You know, probably a good place to start before we get too far ahead of ourselves is just by noting that some labels, such as USDA Organic or Rainforest Alliance Certified, are official certifications and only products that adhere to very specific guidelines are allowed to use those labels. Other labels are not so well-defined or, and this is key, verified by an independent organization. Yeah, great point, Sarah. And in the realm of recycling, there are a lot of products that have recycling symbols on them but aren't actually able to be recycled locally. Uh, so we talked about back in our wishful recycling, speaking of, that was back in February. We covered this a bit, especially on the topic of plastics. Um, this is why it is so important to not solely rely on those recycling symbols on products for recycling guidance. So instead, use your local program to understand what can or cannot be recycled. In addition to those recycling labels that sometimes aren't accurate, uh, we sometimes see words like sustainable, natural, eco-friendly uh, printed on product packaging without much explanation or any explanation to accompany them. So these words alone, unfortunately, do not represent any sort of official sustainability certification. And any manufacturer can print them on products, whether the products are truly sustainable or not. So true. You know, clearly this is a complex topic right from the get-go, which is. is why we wanted to talk about it today. Um, you know, not all of those labels are bunk, though. Some are quite useful, and even some of the ones that are useful can be more complex than they might seem. 
I feel like I'm talking in circles. Why don't we bring it down to some specifics? How about composting, Jane, a topic that you and I know and love. Are there some official and not so official labels to use as guidance? I understand you may have some visual aids. I do. I do have visual aids, of course. Uh, there, there definitely are. So we may have noticed on some products, there sometimes is a word stamped on that says biodegradable. While this word might sound, and we completely understand, while this word might sound like a description of something that could be composted, it is not actually what that means. So there are no guidelines associated with this label, just like what we were talking about with uh, natural, sustainable, eco-friendly, et cetera. This one's kind of similar. And oftentimes what we see with those biodegradable labeled products is in the manufacturing process, it's using plant-based and plastic-based components, which is really tricky. It makes it so it not only is not compostable, but it's also not recyclable. So to ensure that a package, a cup, a plate, et cetera, whatever you have in front of you is compostable, look for either a US Composting Council certification or one that says BPI certified. So like what we see here, this is one of our compost certified uh, bags that we use over at the Eastside Recycling Center. So look for either of those and that will let you know if something is compostable. Mm -hmm. I know that that is something you and I have talked about a lot. In fact, you know, one of the grant applications we recently received for a climate action grant this year was to purchase biodegradable bags. And when we spoke to the applicant, they were surprised to learn that not only are these bags not compostable, they don't really biodegrade in the traditional sense of the word either. Yep. What they do if they're left outside of a landfill is break down into smaller and smaller plastic pieces. So they actually just become microplastics, which as we know is a problem. Um, instead of breaking down into organic components like you would normally see with a natural uh, product or natural item decomposing or biodegrading, you know, and best case solution, if these biodegradable bags end up in the landfill, like everything else where they're supposed to go, like everything else in the landfill, they really shouldn't break down at all. So what all this adds up yeah. to is a more expensive plastic product with a feel-good label that turns out to be fairly problematic, in which case, you know, our advice would be that your eco dollars might be better spent on something else. Yes, exactly. And if we circle back to the compostable plastics discussion, so the cups, the forks, et cetera, that look and function like plastic but are labeled certified compostable, we've definitely seen problems with these items at our compost facility at the Iowa City landfill. These products do a great job at making composting easier, more approachable, reducing the mess at the consumer level. And as you know, Sarah, as composting has continued to become more popular, we've also seen these products become more popular. Uh, unfortunately, these are manufactured products, which means that they've got chemical additives in them. They just don't break down the way a banana peel or a chicken bone would in a compost pile. So even with our longer processing time at our compost facility versus a lot of others, uh, we tend to cook or let our material break down for a longer period of time than some facilities do. So even with this longer processing time, we still sometimes see those remnants of, let's say, a a shredded piece of one of these compostable bags or a chunk of a fork. And with this particular topic, I'm so glad you brought this example up, Sarah, because it's a great example of a product that does have a legitimate certification, but obviously it's still complicated and not quite a perfect solution yet. 
Yeah, it is complicated, you know, and important to be aware of as a consumer. You know, Jane, I want to delve more into the recycling end of this because I see, think that's where a lot of these labels pop up that we have questions about. But sure. um, first, let's pause and answer some of the comments or questions that have been coming up in the Q&A. Um, I think we can knock a few of those off our list before we go on. You know, one of them that I see came up from James is um, he says he doesn't have a specific label to call out, but does wonder how we can verify claims by companies to source food sustainably from a specific location. And, you know, I don't know that there's a short answer to that question. Um, I think it boils down to just asking a lot of questions, digging around on the website. And I'll use a, a great example of this. We don't want to call out any specific companies, you know, um, but we'll just call this company Big Burrito. Um, so there's a big burrito company that a few years ago, you might recall, made a big splash about how it used a lot of locally sourced foods. Um, and I remember eating at it thinking, like, I wonder if this is an example of greenwashing. So I started digging in um, and actually I got a request to do so from work. Somebody else had been having a similar question. And what we found out is that um, this company, which was saying it was using locally sourced foods, well, how it was defining that was that for one ingredient for one month out of the year um, had to be sourced within 500 miles of the store. So for this particular um, location for the big burrito chain, um, for them, they were bringing in peppers from Kentucky for one month out of the year. Um, and based on that, we're saying that they had locally sourced ingredients. Now, you could argue, you know, 500 miles to, from there to the store is closer than, say, 2,000 miles, which, you know, is more like the average distance foods travel. So it is better than nothing, but I would argue it was probably too small an effort to really earn that local foods label. So um, when you go to ask these questions, um, the good things to ask are just, like, who who is producing the product? Like, can you name the farm? Or can you name the location where it comes from? And that does two things. Um, if they're able to give you that information, that's a clear indicator that they're on the up and up. They know where this food is coming from. They're keeping track of it themselves. But also, as in the case of this burrito example, it gives you a chance to really weigh what you're hearing and decide if that satisfies what you're looking for. You know, like if you hear that um, one of the ingredients comes from within a 500 mile radius of the city and you're like, that's good enough for me. Well, now you know you've got that information. And if it doesn't feel good enough for you, then you know to look to other locations. So thanks for that great question, James. I think it's a really great example of not only how complicated these issues can be, but also you know the value and how you go about asking some of the key questions to figure out whether or not the claims are legitimate. Yeah. Um, I see we've also got a question, Jane, about EPA Safer Choice Certified. Um, which shows up on seventh generation dishwashing detergent. Do you have any thoughts on that one? Yeah, I was actually just looking at their website because we do, um, for various other programs, navigate the EPA website quite often. Um, and that's a great example of something that is very transparent. It tells you exactly what the label means. So yes, this would be an official one. Um, this is something that we will definitely, now that this has been included in the chat, we'll include a link to that in the follow-up email. Essentially what that's looking at though is uh, it's evaluating each ingredient in let's say dishwasher soap or a cleaning product. And it's identifying how safe it is, what its uh, toxicity is, et cetera. 
Um, and that's, that is exactly what the standard is about, is looking at, you know, what they gauge as safe versus toxic chemicals in terms of the different ingredients. Um, so like I said, we will definitely include a link to that so you can read more if you want to about all the criteria that is involved with that label. I think Jane, actually, you'd be a great person to tackle the next one too. Um, there's a question about if you care household gloves, which are labeled 100% natural rubber and natural cotton, and the instructions they come with say they're compostable. Um, but this resident is saying when they put them in their yellow curbside compost bin, the sanitation workers don't take them. Would mm -hmm. you like to speak to that a little? Yeah, so things like this that are out of the ordinary that show up in our compost bin, because we have such a low tolerance for contamination, just to ensure that the composting process is healthy and successful and makes quality compost, they usually err on the side of caution. So with something like that, if they are not 100% sure, uh, they will sometimes mark it and not collect it. So that is a good thing from a trying to reduce contamination standpoint, but we also completely understand that there are new products on the market all the time with new innovations claiming to be compostable and some of which are official, you know, are actually containing compostable ingredients. Um, so if you have questions about something with those gloves, for example, one thing that we have done from a curbside standpoint is, and, and this is, uh, you know, the simplest solution to this, we've actually had people write notes on the top of their compost bin saying, I talked to Jane, the recycling coordinator. Um, so with those particular items, if we vet it as something that is 100% compostable, which I also have residents that will send me photos or descriptions of things, and I'm happy to confirm if it can or cannot be composted. The other option is out at the compost facility as well. Um, so a few options there. Either way, if it's something that you continue to use and you're gonna to continue to have in your compost bin, let's definitely have a conversation after this event and, and we can clear that. Yeah. You know, the other thing I'll say, and I love this, this is a great example of a product, you know, that says it's 100% natural rubber and natural cotton. And because of that, it can be composted. And those are great things. But it's also worth recognizing that both rubber and cotton have a pretty large carbon footprint of their own. Um, cotton in particular uses um, just tons of water and tons of pesticide um, for industrial production. And so here, one of the things that like I'm seeing um, that would sort of set up a flag for me is the idea that it's natural cotton versus organic cotton. So yep. right away, what that tells me is there's probably a pretty heavy pesticide load associated with the production of that cotton and probably also um, some pretty a pretty heavy or pretty pronounced water consumption, which makes me wonder if reusable gloves might be a better option long-term. Um, in fact, that almost always any item that you can reuse rather than um, recycle or compost almost always, always comes out ahead mm -hmm. in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and total carbon footprint. Now, of course, you know, if you're using these gloves to clean things around the house and maybe you're exposing them to harsh chemicals, maybe you don't want to get, hold on to them. And that's legitimate too. There are some things that do just need to eventually end up in the landfill. And we'll talk a bit more about that later. But I think this is a great example of like taking those labels and really thinking like, what is your highest priority? Mm -hmm. um, and that's different for every person. If your highest priority as a resident is to buy products that can be composted, great. 
then this may very well be a good product for you. If your highest priority as a resident is to purchase a product that has a low carbon footprint, this may not be the best option. But either way, Jane and I are here always, always as resources to help you sort through these questions. So please don't ever hesitate to reach out to us. You don't even have to wait for a speaking of to send us these questions. We're happy to get them and look into them um, and help you make the kinds of choices you want to be making. So thanks for the great question. Anything you wanted to add to that, Jane? Well, I'm so glad you mentioned that, Sarah, in terms of the natural in, in the title as well, just like what we mentioned about words that may be included in descriptions on product packaging that really have no official certification. So I'm, I'm so glad you called that out. And the other thing is, you know, if, for example, as you said, if you're using something that you know is going to be exposed to chemicals and that you're going to want to get rid of anyway, if it's exposed to chemicals, we wouldn't want it in the compost bin anyway, even if the gloves themselves are made of compostable materials, which means that it would have to end up in the landfill. And if those are truly organic ingredients, those then would be contributing to methane. So in that case, a whole nother consideration would be if you have to use something disposable, should I just be looking for a standard pair of plastic gloves uh, from a landfill perspective? So, you know, Another, this is another rabbit hole of it's complicated, uh, but as Sarah said, we are both here to, we're happy to have those discussions for any products that residents have questions on. Absolutely. Boy, and you know, just to show, you never knew you could talk so much about gloves. I'll just say as a final note, like if you have a piece of cotton and you're curious about whether or not it can biodegrade or be compostable, if you have a home compost bin, you actually could cut a finger off that glove and put it in your compost bin and see if it starts to break down. If it does, then yes, it is compostable. Um, True. Uh, so long as it hasn't been exposed to chemicals. Jane knows this. We sometimes laugh about it. I once uh, composted an entire sheet set because I just couldn't bear the thought. It'd become so threadbare. It really couldn't be uh, sent to a donation center to be reused. It really, it was at the end of its use life. And I spent an afternoon cutting those sheets up into little one inch squares so that they would break down quickly in the compost bin, which was a really illuminating process. <laughs> oh my goodness, yes. And it looks like we have one other uh, response actually to this from the audience. So we'll read that and then we'll keep going. Um, sure. This comes from Daphne who says, one way I compost natural cotton, linens, burlap, and other natural fibers shirts, skirts, sheets, sacks, etc., is to use them instead as landscape fabric at the bottom of raised garden beds, which is great repurposing use. We love that. Yeah. Um, and then has a question about what could be the impact of using cotton exposed to chemicals to your compost? Will it kill the beneficial microbes? And um, the short answer is yes, that's exactly the risk you run, that um, you'll have that chemical exposure to those microbes. And also, depending on um, how those chemicals degrade themselves, you know, it could become a legacy chemical that gets carried into your flower bed or, heaven forbid, your vegetable bed or into your yard. So that's one of the reasons we want to be careful about the chemical exposure on those products. Definitely. Yeah. And we say the same thing for paper towels or Kleenex or things like that. Uh, if it's been exposed to chemicals, we wouldn't want that in the compost bin. If it's just been used to wipe up some water or used during lunch, fine, yeah. Okay, well, thank you everybody for those great comments and questions. My gosh, we've got a good discussion going so far, Sarah. So I've got a few things uh, to mention related to recycling, but Sarah, is there something that you'd like me to mention first? 
Well, you know, we uh, brainstormed a lot of topics to cover today, but I think it actually yeah. never hurts to touch on labeling on plastics products because that is always something that seems to be in flux and changing. Um, so if you could talk a little about how to know if a plastic product can be recycled or not. Sure. Um, I know we get a lot of questions about that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So we do get a lot of questions from our residents about numbers stamped on plastic items. So these range from number one to number seven, and these numbers are actually resin identification codes. That's what they mean. And although they have been popularly adopted as a means to identify if a plastic can or cannot be recycled, these numbers are actually much more helpful at the pre-consumer manufacturing and the post-consumer processing stages uh, more so than they are at the consumer level trying to determine if a plastic can actually be recycled or not. So this is the exact reason why we've moved away from using the numbers as a recycling guide. We definitely understand this adds a layer of confusion in terms of our efforts to recycle plastic. We get it, it's, it's difficult. Uh, the issue, the underlying issue here is that plastic is an extremely chemically complex material, which translates to a complicated recycling process too. Oh, you know, it really is complicated. And mm -hmm. I know one of the other questions we get when we start discussing the numbers is, yes, but there's a recycling symbol around the number. So doesn't yeah. that mean it's recyclable? You know, when I was a recycling coordinator, I actually got this question from my boss. So there's some understandable confusion around it. Um, I'll just say that symbol is known in the industry as the chasing arrows symbol. It looks like three little arrows chasing each other. And it was actually something that was essentially borrowed from the recycling industry by the plastics industry for their labeling. Um, as a result, it doesn't automatically mean that that item can be recycled. Now, obviously neither you nor I, Jane, were in the room when that decision was made. So we can't say that the plastic industry trying to deceive customers by using that symbol, but we can definitely say it has led to exactly this kind of confusion. Yes. So, Back to those numbers and the chasing arrows, when you said that the numbers on plastics are less helpful to a consumer, my guess is you're uh, angling to say, check with your local program instead of relying on those symbols. Would that be right, Jane? Correct. Yes, that's correct, Sarah. So even if you see the chasing arrows symbol in a number on a plastic item in front of you, always check with your local program uh, to see if it can actually be recycled. So typically there are three different scenarios that we see in terms of plastics that have recycling symbols on them. Um, so either it might be recyclable in your local program. Second scenario, it's not recyclable, even though there's a stamp on it. Third scenario, it might technically be a type of plastic that could be recycled once or twice, but because of its shape or its size, it is not safe or feasible to recycle it within a municipal curbside system. An example of something like this might be a plastic tub, uh, which some of those items, there is an industrial recycling process option for them. But if we get down to community recycling programs, that's something that is such a different shape and size that it just does not fit in the current system. Those are really good distinctions, Jane. You know, when it comes to plastics, Jane and I always recommend to err on the side of caution, which can feel a little counterintuitive. If you don't see it pictured as an accepted item in our recycling guide, 
it's likely not accepted and should not be placed in the trash. You know, as we've often said, when in doubt, throw it out. Yes, agreed, exactly. And we understand it can be difficult and painful at times to throw something in the trash that you think might be recyclable. Uh, but the best thing to remember in doing this is that you are helping to prevent potential recycling contamination. So preventing contamination is huge. That keeps the costs low, which ultimately lets us recycle more things. So you're throwing away one item so that we were able to recycle several more items. It keeps the system healthy, efficient, and running smoothly as it should. Mm -hmm. You know, beyond the plastic containers that we normally see going into our curbside or drop-off recycling programs, there are a lot of other little plastic odds and ends like toothbrushes and disposable razors that aren't conventionally recyclable, but yeah. can sometimes come with, I know you've been waiting for this, Jane, a TerraCycling label. Do you want to talk a little about that? <sighs> you know, I'm glad you brought TerraCycling up, Sarah, because it's a, this is a good example here of how we might try to determine if a label is something that we can trust or not going through that process. So a lot of times when we're trying to figure out whether something can actually be recycled or not, the first question we ask is, well, what is it being made into? And oftentimes a recycler that's on the up and up is able to tell you or should be able to tell you without much difficulty, without much hesitation, you know, we make this product into benches or fleece or some other specific product. Uh, the tricky thing with TerraCycle is that it's just not quite as transparent. So we don't know what they're making some of the things that they accept into. Could be that they're using the products for research for future recycling processes, and that's legitimate. Or it could be that a portion of it may be diverted through recycling and a larger portion of it is actually being sent to a landfill. The problem is we just don't have a good way of knowing. So it's less of a straightforward label than one we'll get to later that I will name drop right now, the how to recycle label. Ah, how to recycle. Yeah, um, our anonymous attendee was asking for about the little label that we both think is doing the hero's work. So ah, yes. stay tuned, it's here's how to we recycle. We'll get to it. <laughs> But yeah, I think that TerraCycle example is a great one. Thinking back to what we were just saying about Big Burrito, you know, we're saying ask where the material comes from. Yeah. And in this case with TerraCycle, it's ask what it's being made into. And really, that's just bringing it all full cycle to cradle to cradle, right? The mm -hmm. questions we're asking are about where does it come from? Where does it going? And between those two bits of information, you can usually figure out um, whether or not a label is legitimate and how good of a product it is. But, you know, speaking of murky labels, one we teased earlier was certified plastics neutral, which you could argue inspired this whole conversation. Um, it recently came onto our radar and it's a funny label because of the wording, which seems to imply that it's a kind of plastic that might not be plastic at all, that's how it's neutral, or potentially it's made in some way that's less of a harmful impact to the environment. But when we dug into it to figure out what was going on with this label, what we learned is that it signifies for every ton of plastic used by this manufacturer, they pay to have a ton of plastic taken out of the ocean. And that's not an unworthy goal, of course, you know, um, but at the end of the day, it is still another ton of plastic entering the waste stream. So it can still lead to some confusion. 
clearly, clearly a better solution would be something that reduces plastic usage overall. Um, so it's not ending up in the ocean to begin with and not you know, crowding up the landfill, but it's worth saying how you take plastic out of the ocean matters too. It's not simply a matter of being able to scrape it off the top of the water because there are a lot of creatures that come to live in that plastic that can get scraped up too in the process. Mm -hmm. And there's really just not a lot of information out there about how the plastics neutral organization does that work, which goes back to what we've also been saying about transparency. Like for the questions you ask, these companies should be able to give you those answers. Hopefully the companies using the label certified plastics neutral are asking those questions themselves of the certifying body and looking into it, but we don't know. And that makes it hard for us to endorse. It does. Yeah. And our, this whole discussion of plastics really shows the harm of greenwashing or misleading, misleading labels on products. As we know, labeling on all sorts of products can be really powerful to consumer choice. So the decisions that we make when we're going to the store uh, to buy different products. If a product looks green, we might be more inclined to purchase it. I'm definitely that type of consumer. On the other end, once we are done with the product, once we've used it, the labeling could also guide our disposal choices, just like what we have mentioned with this whole plastics discussion. So far, we have touched on some official and some not so official labels. Sarah, before we delve into identifying some of those solutions here, is there a major takeaway that we can share with the audience up until this point? You know, um, I'd say simply put is just to say it is okay to be suspicious or curious about a label and to learn more. You know, we really encourage yeah. you to do your research as a consumer and learn what labels mean. If you want your purchases to make a difference, as the labels indicate, a little research can provide some peace of mind and verification. And you can always reach out to us, as we've said, if you have a question, we're quite happy to help. But, you know, there is one other thing I want to say, something that you and I have discussed often, Jane, and that is, you know, it's worth saying at least once that often, often the most eco-friendly purchase of all is if you can, to not make that purchase to begin with. A lot of these labels exist to make us feel like it's okay to keep consuming at the rate we are. But yeah. you know, one of the things we know from the consumption-based greenhouse gas study that was done for Iowa City is that everyone, if everyone on the planet consumed at the rate that we typically see in Iowa City, we would need four planet Earths to support it. So by reusing items, repairing items, rather than purchasing new or even using up the things we already have, you help lower emissions across the board, um, lower transportation emissions, lower manufacturing emissions, lower disposal emissions. And those are three big wins. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's very true. I'm glad you mentioned that, Sarah. But of course, there are definitely still products that we have to purchase just for everyday living as you and I and everyone on this discussion today knows uh, things like food and toothpaste and contact fluid, et cetera. There's still products that we have to consume. The good news is that there are some legitimate labels out there that can help us to reduce our climate impact 
even with products that are meant to be purchased, consumed, and then disposed of. There are definitely some labels that can still help us out with that. And drum roll, Sarah, a great <laughs> example of this is the how to recycle label. Yes, our favorite label. And actually, James, is. this is going to get to your question too about companies being responsible for issuing an info sheet uh, for consumers to be able to know how to recycle things. How to recycle basically functions like that info sheet in a very small space. Um, you know, it represents a good faith effort by a number of manufacturers, and in fact, a growing number of manufacturers to reduce confusion around recycling. Jane, I know you have an example up your sleeve. You want to take I us do. through it? <laughs> I brought all the examples today, Sarah. All right, so we'll start with the example. So this is just a paper bag and we can see on it, it says recycle if clean and dry. It says paper bag. And then if you don't remember this shape, which by the way, every how to recycle label is this exact same shape. We were just really lucky to have such a large one today for an example, but it will also say how to recycle.info. So you can always look for that and know if it is the official how to recycle label. So as you can see from this, and if I were to show you 10 other products, it would be that exact same size. So it offers a standardized labeling system, which looks the same no matter the product, provides guidance on how to dispose of different parts of uh, packaging all in one label. So let's say that something comes in a plastic tray in a cardboard box, and maybe there's a plastic film over the tray. Maybe it's cookies or something in the tray and there's a plastic film over it. It will say that the film's not recyclable, the box is recyclable, and for the tray, it might say check locally on the tray. Yeah, that is one of my favorite things about that label, that if there are different components to the packaging, it gives you recycling guidance for each one of those components, which goes a long way to reducing confusion and contamination. Yeah. I'll also say the check locally is my favorite part, because for so long, companies were able to put a recycling symbol on a product, even if very few places in the country could recycle it which made the company look virtuous and your local curbside program look like the bad guy for not taking it. When in truth, there may be only 10% of places in the country that just have the ability to handle it. And by yeah. handle it, what we mean is have a factory nearby that can break down that product and prepare it for reuse. You know, one of the other things Jane and I often talk about is so often we think what makes a product recyclable is whether or not you can put it in your bin. But actually what makes it recyclable is whether or not someone else can take it from the bin and convert it into a material that can be made into something else. Yeah. So a label that just says recyclable or not recyclable doesn't do a great job of letting you know how likely it is to be recycled. But a check locally label acknowledges these things are complex, as you and I are always saying, all recycling is local. It often comes down to which factories are nearby that can process that material. So your best bet is always, when in doubt, to ask your local recycling coordinator, in this case, Jane. Yeah, this gets to the heart of the topic today too, greenwashing, which is to say labels that make a product seem like a more environmentally friendly choice than what they might be. Uh, that's really the great thing about the how to recycle label is that they're detailed enough to not only give you a good guidance on how to break a product down for recycling, as we said, say separating the tray from the film. 
but enough detail also to make a more informed choice. So if it says check locally, it's telling you that there is a chance that it might not be recyclable. And it says check locally because there may be some places that are able to accept it, but that's also a good indicator that it's complicated. Um, and it's probably more likely that it's trash than it is recyclable in a lot of locations. You know, Jane, this actually makes me think of a related topic, zero waste which is not so much a label for products as it is for companies. Um, and the implication of course, is that they found a way to reuse or recycle everything they make or use themselves. Like if they have office paper, they're recycling all of it within their offices. You know, and that sounds great, but the reality is, I feel like it's the theme of the conversation. It's complex, you know, and it's a term that can mean a lot of different things. What it boils down to is sometimes going to extreme lengths to not send anything to the landfill. And when it's you're recycling or composting or to a lesser degree donating things to keep it out of landfill, that's all great. Mm -hmm. But you know, there's always some things that just cannot be recycled and have to be disposed of. And the way a lot of companies handle that material for which there are no other uses so that they can say they're zero waste is to send those items off to be incinerated. And from an environmental standpoint, that actually might be worse than landfilling it. Theme of the day, it's a complicated <laughs> issue. It, but sometimes the landfill is the best option in that it is a highly engineered system that is specifically designed to contain solid waste and reduce its impact on the surrounding environment. And I can tell you working at our local landfill that we take that very seriously here, that we're reducing our environmental impact as much as possible. So getting back to what you were saying there, Sarah, as an example, let's say a company has a choice to landfill a small portion of its material locally, or to send that remaining material out of state to be incinerated merely to retain that zero waste status. So sending it out of state generates those transportation emissions. Also the actual process of incinerating that remaining garbage can release a lot of particulate emissions into that surrounding area where it's being incinerated as well. Whereas if we look at landfilling, landfilling is actually minimizing both of those things. So even though it's not 100% waste reduction, landfilling can actually do more to reduce that environmental harm. But, you know, that just really speaks to how complicated these issues can be. But it also reminds me of something else you and I have talked about in terms of figuring out which labels are legitimate and which might be problematic. And that's the age, age old adage. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Now, that may not necessarily mean don't do it. It still may be better than other options. But by staying curious, we're able to keep the door open to find those better solutions. Yeah, so Sarah, that brings us to the last point that we wanted to make. How does anyone figure this out? I am sure I'm not the only one slightly stressed out right now. Uh, should we be suspicious all the time? Should we buy what sounds good and hope that even if it isn't perfect, it's better than nothing? Sarah, what should we do? <laughs> Boy, you know, I think if we had the answers to that, you and I could probably retire. Like we had the answers across the board. But, you know, I think it's worth saying first and foremost, there are really great resources out there that can tell you which labels are legitimate and which might be worth thinking more carefully about. And, you know, I believe we're planning on sending links to several of them out. Is that correct, Jane? Yes. Okay. 
Yes, that is correct. And uh, so we'll be sharing links to a lot of different websites that'll be useful. I think it's also worth saying, you know, Sarah, you said in one of the past discussions for speaking of when in doubt, think of energy usage, which I always love bringing it back to this. So if a label says a product is made with clean energy or has reduced packaging, which uses energy to produce, or can be reused as what you were talking about earlier there, Sarah, that's all going to have a bigger impact than say a label like certified plastics neutral, which sounds good, but really it's just letting a company keep doing what they're doing without really making changes to the process. Yeah, poor certified plastics neutral. We're really dunking on it today. I you know. know. I think James in our Q&A really had a great comment. Like it just seems like it's deferring, taking meaningful action, which I think is a great way of putting that. Yeah. But yeah. you know, yeah, I think that's a really great point, Jane, and something that I often come back to myself. Just always let energy use be your guide. Because broadly speaking, you know, it's energy usage that drives most greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so it becomes a really useful way to weigh your options. Which one is going to use less energy? And barring that, which one's going to use more clean energy of the energy it has to use? And, you know, I probably wouldn't be doing my job. If I didn't say, once again, the lowest energy option is often not buying something if you don't need it. Agreed. I think that's a great point to hit home. So before we wrap it up today, we definitely want to dedicate some more time to our Q&A box and get a few more questions answered. I think, Sarah, we're still doing great on time. We've got 15 minutes. So yeah, we've got what we've got here. Plenty of time for these discussions. So one of our attendees says, you know, asks if we're familiar with the New York Times investigative piece about organic cotton being fraudulent um, and says the GOTS label remains on clothing, but the items may not actually be organic, which of course is confusing, confusing. And then says, should we just give up and stop trying to buy organic cotton clothing? Um, I'll say I'm not familiar with that specific article, but I am familiar with some of the controversy around organic cotton um, labeling and even just cotton labeling in general. Are you familiar with the article yourself, Jane? I'm not, but you know, I'm going to write it down and we'll certainly look into that. Um, yeah, it sounds like an interesting point. read. Um, you know, there are there are more earth friendly materials out there, I will say, um, you know, if you can find something made of hemp or to some degree linen. I think this really like textiles are really complex in fairness, and I can certainly understand the sentiment of saying, you know, should we just give up and stop trying to buy organic. Um, I think. I think every consumer makes these decisions individually based on, you know, our, our own complex sort of moral ecosystem. Um, and I think for some people, yeah, it, it does make sense to uh, not buy organic cotton clothing or cotton clothing in general. I would say um, for others, there's maybe a recognition that like cotton exists, those clothes are already out there. And if you already own cotton clothing, like wear it out, wear it as much as you can, recognizing like all the energy and water and resources that have gone into creating that piece of clothing. Like if it already exists, we want to get the full value out of it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think buying things secondhand also can be a great way of mitigating some of this because it just cuts down on the demand. Um, and if we don't have as much demand, like spring constantly producing more and more cotton, that allows those organic growers to catch up. 
Um, but yeah, I think it's I think it's a great question. It really points to how confusing some of this can be. Um, I would say at the end of the day, it goes back to a little of what we were saying earlier, like rather than relying on the label alone, maybe see what the company that created that article of clothing or that sells that article of clothing has to say about their certification process. Do they know where the cotton came from? Do they know the kinds of practices that are being done? Maybe, and this is often the case, they're a company that is in regular conversation with the producers of those materials asking them these very questions. And so they may be getting the more legitimate sources of cotton. So it never hurts to ask some questions and keep your eyes open and keep looking for better solutions, which it sounds like that's exactly what you're doing. Thanks for the really thoughtful question. Yeah. All right, I see one in here about electronics and this is a good question. This is definitely has to do with, you know, a, is it a legitimate certification or not? So the question is, I was going to recycle some electronics at Best Buy. My friend told me electronics recycling is bogus and taking them to Best Buy is the same as taking them to the dump. Do you agree? So uh, out at the landfill, we do have electronic recycling. Uh, we work with a very uh, official certified electronic recycler locally out of Walford, Iowa. So I know our program very well because we manage our program. In terms of Best Buy, so the program that they offer is definitely a uh, extended producer responsibility, sort of product stewardship, that if they are going to be selling the electronics and the appliances, they should offer a take-back program for them. Um, it is a program that we do recommend as an alternative if somebody doesn't want to use one of our city programs. As far as what I know of the Best Buy programs, and of course it is different because it would be for a national store versus our local landfill. Um, so their program is set up a little bit differently because of that. But as far as I know, it is verified. They do have the proper certifications to be able to accept those. However, since it was brought up, I am happy to share a link in our follow-up email as well. Sarah, do you have anything else to add to that one? Um, I would just say the note about it's the same as taking electronics to the dump is probably worth commenting on as well, especially sure. since we're coming off a week where we had a number of electronics fires <laughs> or battery caused fires um, from batteries that were in electronics out at the landfill. You know, sending electronics to the landfill is one of the most dangerous things you can do in terms of disposing of a product. So keeping those materials out of the landfill is, is key. It's something we definitely encourage, um, not just because of the dangers posed by when batteries get punctured, they can cause those fires, which are dangerous for our workers, dangerous for the landfill. They emit all kinds of terrible, terrible emissions. Mm -hmm. um, but also like the electronics themselves are just materials you don't want sitting in your landfill. They've got heavy metals. There are better ways of reclaiming those heavy metals to make sure they don't um, God forbid, leak into our um, our water systems or, you know, penetrate the ground. Like there are responsible electronics recycling programs set up there. One of the things we're required to do as city employees, you know, as Jane mentioned, is verify the electronics recycling process for electronics that we take in. So taking your electronics to be recycled, particularly if you're taking it out to uh, the landfill site that um, Jane helps operate, um, is way, way better than putting them in the trash. Um, and in fact, just as a side note, I'll add, 
one of the troubling trends that we've seen recently are things called rage rooms. I know there's one that's operating up in Cedar Rapids now. I know there's one that's over in the Quad Cities. Mm-hmm. And these are businesses that are built on It's such a funny business model. Letting people come in and smash things with like baseball bats. You come into the room, say you had a frustrating day at work, and they'll give you an old TV or a laptop to smash up, um, which... I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that relieves some stress. But what it also does is uh, expose you to some pretty dangerous situations because those businesses are not set up to handle that electronic waste. So uh, we also try to get the word out that like, you know, there are other ways to handle your anchor that don't put you and the environment at risk. And um, if you want suggestions on those, hey, feel free to reach out as well. We might recommend a really nice city park to take a walk in instead or some good folks to talk to. <laughs> yeah, Sarah, thanks for mentioning that. I think a few things to mention there. So we do at our local landfill, and some of these are actually represented at landfills across the state too. We have bans on appliances. We also have bans on TV and computer screens. And for smaller appliances or smaller electronics that maybe aren't included in those bands, we still strongly encourage those come through recycling programs. And we've got recycling programs for all those items. So as Sarah said, you know, we've really got two scenarios as to why we strongly encourage recycling and why we have landfill bands on certain items. There's chemicals, there's hazardous materials, there's heavy metals in these items. And secondly, there's a lot of stuff that can be recovered and reused. So why would we throw it in the trash if we could use it again? So those are really the two things that can motivate some of our recycling programs and some of our landfill bans. The other thing that I really want to hit home today, and this is something that we're trying to do more in our outreach to Sarah's point about the batteries. We've seen a spike in battery fires since there's been the least turnover time, uh, students coming back into town. Uh, we've, we've definitely had some landfill fires in the last few weeks. One was actually an iPad tablet computer that somebody threw in the trash. So my point with that is it doesn't look like a battery, but it has a battery inside of it. So don't put it in the trash. There's plenty of ways that we can deal with that through our different recycling methods. Yeah. You know, our next question, you can tell this is someone who's been paying attention, Jane, and calling us out on our own advice. Yeah. Uh, wants to know where our Iowa City plastics go to be recycled. You know, yeah, so. hey, Trisha. <laughs> So uh, we currently work with the Waste Commission of Scott County. What happens with our drop-off material or curbside collection material, we collect it all, we transport it over to uh, a sister company of ABC Disposal Systems. That's the name that I think our audience members would know. They bail it and they transport it over to Davenport, Iowa, to the Waste Commission of Scott County, which is a sorting facility. That is where all those materials are sorted into the different plastic categories, then they're further bailed. They've got a variety of different plastic mills that they work with, and it can change from time to time. Um, They they have a a definite list that they go by, but on a day-to-day basis, it may look different. Um, What I can say, I do have a list of who those companies are. if, if there is interest in that, we can definitely talk more about that after the event. We do know who the plastic mills are. Um, Sarah, I'm going to hand it over to you to talk really briefly about the mission statement with Waste Commission of Scott County, just to represent not just the plastic, but the paper, the cardboard, et cetera, the materials that they're processing, what happens to them. Yeah, well, you know, one of the great things, we're so lucky to have a resource like the Waste Commission of Scott County nearby to uh, work with for our recycling program, because 
not only do they have um, a very intensive certification process where they can tell you absolutely where everything goes and what it is made into, but it's also part of their charter to try to find the nearest local sources possible to process that material. So um, one of the things we saw in the last few years was a lot of recycling programs in the nation being impacted by um, restrictions being placed on recycling in China, um, meaning that places that had gotten quite used to sending their material overseas to be recycled suddenly had to find new factories to find them. Mm -hmm. But uh, the Waste Commission of Scott County, because of their mission to um, really support those local contracts and pursue local options as much as possible, was already way ahead of the game in having those contracts in place so that they didn't experience the same disruptions that other places did. And in fact, we're at the head of the line when those other locations start coming in and finding these factories and saying, hey, we've got this material, we'd really love to send it to you. Um, they already had it locked in for our area. So they're just a wonderful partner. We're so lucky to work with them. And um, in fact, I know that in our last, um, our, well, this wishful recycling conversation I think we had for speaking of several months ago, one of the things we mentioned is, you know, a really great example of that is that um, cardboard that gets recycled through our curbside recycling program here in Iowa City um, through the Waste Commission of Scott County sends it to a plant in Valparaiso, Indiana, which is the closest paper mill um, that they could contract with to handle all that material. And that mill um, breaks down the cardboard, reforms it as new cardboard, cuts it out, makes it into boxes that go out to delivery and you know, I feel like I talk about this all the time because it's such a great example of how when things work well, they really work well. Yeah. From the time you put that cardboard in your recycling bin to when it gets delivered to somebody else as a newly made box is a space of about 11 or 12 days. Like, that's amazing. That is. That's a great example for a successful recycling program. Yeah. And a great example of knowing exactly where your material is going, how it's being recycled. Definitely. Some reassurance. Yeah. Great. I see a question in here about, will there be a recording available? Yes, we have been recording this and we will send that out with the follow-up email with some of those further resources as well. Yeah, and we see um, someone saying they really like the not buying point. Thank you for saying that. Sometimes I feel like a real wet blanket being like, and the best thing you can do is not buy something. But that is the truth. You know, reducing consumption has some pretty profound greenhouse gas emissions reductions implications. Um, and this person adds that they're trying to do more to borrow items from friends and neighbors, which just like makes my heart glow because not only is that just a great environmental practice, but that really helps build resilience within the neighborhood to share things between neighbors, you know, and that's something else we think about a lot in the climate office is how, how are we building a resilient Iowa City that can withstand the impacts of things like another derecho. You know, and one of the things we know in those extreme weather events is that it takes on average about three days to mobilize state and federal resources. So for the first three days after a disaster, FEMA is not going to be knocking on your door. You know, who's going to be knocking on your door are your neighbors and your friends living around you. So the more connections we can make, it sounds funny, like borrowing a cup of sugar or uh, someone's chainsaw to help bring down a limb um, actually helps build that resilience into your neighborhood so that when the disaster strikes, people know who each other are, you can open the door, you recognize one another. So it's just, it's just a great practice. You know, it always makes me think of um, 
a really beloved neighbor I had once who, when I borrowed something from her and then tried, said, you know, I'm going to return this to you in a few days. I was borrowing a couple eggs for a dish I was making. She said, let's just make this a neighborhood where people help one another out. And I think that's just such a great ethos to live by. So thanks for doing that work. <laughs> hmm. I see we've got the New York Times article. Thank you. Wonderful. We can check that out then. Yeah. And then Tricia says the reason she asks, and I'm assuming this is in reference to the question about the plastics, is sure. that she's read it might be better to put plastics in a well-managed landfill like Iowa City if you don't know where or if the plastics are being recycled. Do you want to speak to that at all, Jane? Yeah, I think that also gets back to really erring on the side of caution with the types of plastics that we're putting into recycling. Sarah and I feel very good about the current recycling contract that we have. There's a lot of integrity built into the systems that they have in place and fullheartedly we feel great about that. I think the biggest concern right now is the percentage of contamination in the plastic stream. If you go to any of our drop-off centers, you know, in general, the paper, the cardboard, the metal, the glass look pretty clean, you know, very low contamination. You look in plastics, very different story. It makes sense. It's complicated. You know, plastic functions so different in terms of the chemical complexity, just like what we were talking about, than a metal can or a glass bottle. So it makes, it makes sense why residents are confused. Um, but that is really where it gets back to follow the images of what can or cannot be accepted. And if you don't see it in the accepted list, better to put it in the garbage. Yeah. You know, and it's worth saying too, we made this point a little in our wishful recycling discussion that ultimately all plastics are destined for the landfill. Yeah. Um, the truth about plastics is they really can only be recycled about once or twice. In fact, sometimes you'll hear it referred to as downcycled because unlike something like glass or aluminum that can be recycled infinitely, you just melt it down and reform it and melt it down and reform it and you never really lose anything in the process. Plastics, because of their chemical composition, um, really do, the, the polymers in them start stiffening up, for lack of a better term, to the point where you can't keep making plastic into a new plastic product over and over. So after it gets recycled uh, two or three times, at best, you know, it gets made into something like fleece or lumber. And as you know, you can't put fleece or lumber in your curbside recycling program. And that's because those things are no longer recyclable. So the destiny of all plastics is to end up in the landfill. Um, it's still good to recycle it to make sure we're, again, getting all the value out of that product that we can. But um, I think it also goes back to the point we made earlier about just reducing consumption, like finding alternatives to plastics right now is a better option than recycling pl plastics if we're looking at the long term. And of course, we're always looking for those solutions and trying to find the new ones. So. Yeah, and Sarah, plastics recycling, as we've talked about, is not sustainable long term. And if we're talking about, you know, erring on the side of caution of a metal can and glass versus a plastic, it's a very different discussion because metal and glass are infinitely recyclable. If we're thinking of aluminum or a glass bottle, infinitely recyclable forever and ever without loss of quality. Plastic is a totally different story. That's really why we talk about erring on the side of caution to reduce that contamination. Yeah. So these are great questions, everyone. And thank you so much. I see there's just some kind words 
in the Q&A box as well. We definitely appreciate that, including um, just a question about where to access past discussions. And those are all available on the city's YouTube channel. Um, and we can include links to those as well in our follow-up email. So we're actually just a little over time. Um, it looks like we managed to get to most all the questions today. If yeah. there are, it looks like there's a question about silicone we didn't get to. Um, Daphne, we can follow up with that um, via email. We always like to follow up on questions we didn't get to. Um, yeah, anything else to add, Jane? Just that, yeah, look for that email. In the next few days, we'll be sending those resources out. And if there are any other follow-up questions, feel free to engage with Sarah and I. We're, we're happy to continue those discussions. And Sarah, was there any final note that you wanted to make on future special speaking of events? Um, well, as you know, we're pretty busy in my office getting ready for Climate Fest, which takes place in September. Um, so we're actually, we've got a lot of great events taking place, including a big kickoff at Big Grove on Wednesday, September 21st. But because we're going to be so busy with that, we probably won't have our usual mid-month virtual discussion. But, and Jane and I are both very excited about this, we're also going to be using that time to work on plans for a special speaking of live event where we'll all be able to be in the same room and not just the same Zoom window together. So stay tuned for details about that. Yeah, I'm excited about this live event planning. That'll be something new for us. So as soon as we know more, we will let our Iowa City community know. In the meantime, thank you everyone so much for joining us for today's Speaking Up and for sticking with us for a few minutes past the hour. Yes, thank you. A great discussion as always. It totally makes or breaks it to have such great questions. So thank you for all for your contributions today. It does. And have a great day, everyone. We'll see you next time.